I've, I've a couple of times watched online, and um, it's not even a tenth. And that's not saying that that's, it's better to be here to be online, okay? I mean, I got to be careful with everything I say, but it is what it is. Um, there's something special that is, is in, this, in this space. And, uh, hey, are we ready for this? Come on, 2021, are we ready? Kind of. You know, I, I, I can't believe how many people say almost as if there's something magical that once we get to 2021, everything is going to go back to normal. <laughs> no. I've said it too, so I'm exposing my own heart here. But do you understand how much entitlement is in that thinking? I mean, like we didn't deserve what happened in 2020. Like we're too good for that. And that all of a sudden we're going to get back to what we do deserve. 2021 could be 10 times worse than 2020. And let's just rejoice in the fact that like Paul, we can say in all things, it is Christ who strengthens me. And you know what he's talking about? What he said right before that. I can be content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether I'm a have or a have-not. I have learned the secret of contentment, for I can do all things through Christ. And if 2021 is 10 times worse than 2020, we can rejoice in that because the church is at its best in hard times. All right? So uh, whatever God has. Now, here's another thing. We've been living in this. Um, I'm talking now to the online crowd. Um, what we do here and the online. And I've talked to a lot of people that watch online and even the times that I've watched online because we have to do it on our computers. And all of a sudden, the gathering can become a very sloppy thing. We start looking at emails. We start doing the other things that we do on our screen. And I don't know how long we're going to be in this, but I would just like to, to coach everybody up a little bit and just say, uh, what our family now does is we just go in the basement, we turn it on the TV, and we have set aside that time to be undistracted from absolutely everything else uh, to just dial into to gather with God's people and to meet with God and to, to, to be on 110%. So uh, that's just a little coaching for me. Um, okay. John's Gospel, chapter 14. Can't believe that this is our text for today. <laughs> you guys sit for my words, but for God's word, we love to stand. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Do not let your hearts be troubled. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. You believe in God. 
believe also in me. For my father's house has many rooms. And if that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come back and take you to live with me, that you also may be where I am. And you know the, the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you really know me, you know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him because you have seen him. This is God's word. You can be seated. So can you remember a time in your life when you've had to say goodbye to someone? Someone you really love? Where you've had to let go of them? The emptiness, the sadness, the deep sense of loss. Three times I had to drop my kids off at college, um, and that's just a crazy experience because you spend your whole life with your kids up until the time they're 18, and, uh, and then boom, it's goodbye. See ya. Empty. I'd just go home and stand in their bedrooms and just immerse myself in just the, the, the pain of that grief. There's nothing like losing someone to death and having to say goodbye that way. And this is what the disciples are experiencing. This Passover meal that they're eating with Jesus has literally turned into a farewell dinner because Jesus just dropped the bomb on these guys by saying, guys, I'm leaving you. I'm saying goodbye. And the disciples are, are, are traumatized by this. Peter's response in John 13, 36, 37 is essentially, Jesus, I can't, I can't, I can't lose you. I can't lose you. Like, I'm going to go where you're, you're going. I mean, just think about what these guys have experienced. They have been with Jesus. Every day, for over three years, they wake up together, they eat meals together, they walk and talk and travel together, they do life on mission together. Every day, their life is intricately bound to Jesus. Of course, Peter's going to say, Jesus, I can't lose you. But Jesus says, Peter, where I'm going, you can't come. And now it's into this trauma that Jesus tells them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now this word troubled here doesn't really capture the meaning of the word. Let's just put it this way. 
Every time this word troubled is used in John's gospel, it's always when someone faces the dread and the terror of losing what they love most. It literally means to be crushed in spirit. It's that sadness, that intense grief, that terror, that horror, all beating down on a person. Like when you feel you can't breathe because someone just took the air out of the room. Many of us right now know that devastation. We've been through it. We've experienced it. Some of us feel that pain right now. It, it is a pain that every person in this room at some point in life will experience. Jesus himself isn't immune. Because this same word describes Jesus at Lazarus' funeral when he is sobbing uncontrollably. And also it's used of Jesus just moments before in John 13, verse 21, where it says Jesus' spirit was deeply troubled. So it's not just the disciples who are crushed, but it's Jesus. So think about it. As Jesus is in this state of being crushed, He's telling the disciples to not be crushed. <laughs> now, here's the deal. If, if I lost my wife, Libby, or one of my kids, and any one of you just kind of came up to me and said, hey, Rod, don't be sad, that would be hard for me to listen to. But there are people in this church who've experienced this devastation of losing someone they love. And because they've walked it, not only would I have to listen to them, but my heart would want to drink every word in that they would have to say. It's because they walked it. They've been through it. Because there is an authority that comes when we suffer and when we suffer well. Now, this authority isn't automatic just because you suffer. Because suffering can either make a person bitter or suffering can make a person better. And when suffering makes a person better, when it makes them wiser and humbler and sweeter and kinder and deeper, there's an authority. I, I, I think it's an unmatched authority because there are people in this church who ooze this authority because they've walked through this grief. And to be honest, my respect for them sometimes borders on worship. And listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, 1, 4 to 5. He has this amazing verse, and I think I have it on PowerPoint. Praise be to the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any grief with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. 
forgot about this. <laughs> Had that thing. I, I, I don't know if I have it on or if it's not on. So if I ever not, don't have it on and you're like, oh, Rod is, <laughs> just no, I forgot. <laughs> Thank you. I love you guys. <laughs> love this church. We've been through a lot. You know what I love about this church? Like where we are? We love each other. We love it. We, we, we sustain this with people thinking different things. Should doors be open? Should they be closed? Should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? And, and yet we lost some people, and we're better for it. It's okay. Because unity and love at each other is most important. Okay, that was a little commercial. <laughs> Going back to 2 Corinthians 1, 4 to 5, uh, think about it. What, what Paul is saying is this. He's saying the reason why we can comfort is because we have suffered. And in our suffering, we have experienced God in the comfort only God can give. And when we experience this comfort, we now have an authority to comfort other people. And it amazes me today how much people want authority, but at the same time avoid suffering at all costs. Now, the reason why Jesus can look at his disciples and say, guys, don't be sad, is because he suffered probably more than any other human, and he has experienced the God of all comfort in his suffering. Do you know this comfort? See, there are reasons for why we, in suffering, can have great comfort. That's why Jesus doesn't just tell them, don't be sad. He gives them a reason. And the comfort he provides is the comfort of his father's house. I don't know if that comforts you. If it doesn't, it's, it's because we don't talk about it enough. Or if we do, we, we, we speak of it as heaven. And here's the problem with heaven. Close your eyes. Close them. What do you picture when I say heaven? It's probably something ghostly and cloudy, because it's abstract, and, and, and therefore, we can't see anything. Which is why most people aren't excited about heaven, but when I say, Father, now you can see something. When I say, Father's house, something probably comes into your mind. Father's house with many rooms, now something abstract is becoming concrete because heaven will not be, according to Jesus, something ghostly or immaterial. It's going to be something we can see and taste and touch, hear, even smell. And who knows, in our glorified eternal state, we might even have senses that we earthlings know nothing about. But even Jesus saying, in my Father's house are many rooms, I mean, 
That could leave some of us thinking, what's so exciting about that? Well, the King James Version spruces this up a little bit, and it says, in my father's house are many what? Mansions. Now we're talking. I mean, my life on earth might suck, but there's a mansion awaiting for me. <laughs> I'm sorry to burst that bubble. It might be a mansion, but that's not what the, the, the text says. I think the King, King James Version is just projecting its values actually upon the text. The NIV actually gets it right. In my father's house are many rooms. A room awaits, not a mansion. So then what makes heaven heaven? Well, Father's house in Hebrew is Beit Av. And it means home. It means family. It's all over your Old Testament. God says to Abraham, Abraham, leave your father's house. It's God saying to Abraham, leave your home. Leave your family. So what Jesus here is is telling us about heaven is that heaven is home. Which means this existence we have right now, I don't care how good it is or how hard you try to make it heaven, it's not home. And it will never be home. Heaven is home. Heaven is family. It's bait off. I don't even know how your heart reacts to this because Maybe never before in all of history have we had such a low view of home and family. I mean, family and home are are, are constantly under attack. Politicians want to replace family and home with big government. Hollywood drags home and family through the mud by making it look worthless and ancient. And then you add to this in our entitled selfish way of life, we've lost the capacity to actually create healthy family and healthy homes. And all the hurt, the wounds, the dysfunction, even the abuse, it's just not worth it. Which is why so many live their lives to, to escape their family. But life in the ancient world was, was, was much different. Um, for starters, the ancient didn't live their life to try to find themselves or to make a life for themselves or to live to show that life off to everybody on social media. The ancients lived simply to survive, to grow enough food, to obtain enough shelter and protection to make it through another year. And the way a person survived was through Beidab. It was through the father's house. The father's house consisted of brothers, sisters, mom, dad, aunts, uncles, cousins, all living under one roof, in this intimate relationship and this deep interdependence. And so in this arrangement, every person from the day they were born to the day they died, they mattered. They were highly valued. They were hugely significant because you needed absolutely everyone in order to survive. Now, the reason why they call home and family Beit Av, father's house, is because everything is centered upon the father. It's a life arrangement where everything and everyone is under his care and protection. 
though everything belongs to him. Every family asset is his. But don't think mobster, he's a father. And as father, he is to care for every need of his household. It's his responsibility that you are fed, clothed, protected, housed, loved, valued, nurtured, sustained, and that you flourish into everything God made you to be. In Acts, it says the most amazing thing about the church. It said there was not a need among them. And that's not just referring to material need, but it's referring to emotional needs, relational needs, spiritual needs, not a need. That describes the responsibility of the father in Bedav, that there would not be a need. And see, this is why to the ancient, Bedav was your life, it was everything to you. It was your protection, your security, it was your meaning, your happiness, your identity. You didn't seek a life outside your family. Family was your life. And to lose Bedav, your father's house, was to lose everything. And see, this is where the word redemption is born or to redeem. It comes out of this concept of father's house because when a family member would lose a piece of property or possibly go bankrupt or even worse, become marginalized or alienated from the bait of, by the way, the Bible has terms for people who are outside the bait of, the widow, the fatherless, the alien. These are people who for whatever reason are outside the Bedav and no longer have Bedav, the father's house. When this happens, it is the father's sole responsibility to use his resources and to do whatever it takes to bring that family member back into Bedav, the father's house. That's redemption. Redemption or to redeem is the father doing whatever it takes, even if it costs him everything to restore the marginalized family member into the household. So the most basic meaning of redemption is to be brought home. And there's so many stories of this in, in, in our Bibles, especially in our Old Testament. Remember Lot, his family, they're taken captive by this warring gang. What does Abraham do? Well, Lot belongs to his Bedav, under his care. So Abraham takes his 300 men. <laughs> I love it. The Bible has its story of 300 before the Greeks had their story of 300. Abraham takes his 300 men, tracks them down, rescues Lot, restores him to Bedav. This is also the story of Ruth and Naomi. Remember Naomi and her family moved to Bethlehem because, or moved from Bethlehem to Moab because of famine. Her two sons there marry foreign wives. Then tragedy strikes. Her husband and her two sons die. So here are these three women. Not only did they just lose their husbands, but they lost their protection. They, they lose Bedav. So when Naomi returns home and Ruth, her daughter-in-law, is clinging to her. 
They are completely marginalized. They are the widow. They are the orphan, the fatherless, the stranger. And when I read this story, I always thought that Naomi was just returning to Bethlehem to return to her family farm, which was still there. But listen, she, she didn't have anything. That doesn't exist. She's outside, bait off with nothing. But this is a story about a redeemer whose name is Boaz. And the first thing Boaz does is he buys the family property back. Probably cost him a fortune. In doing that, he restores Naomi to Bedav. And the person who's probably the most hopeless is Ruth, because not only is she a widow and an orphan, but she's also a foreigner, a stranger. So what does Boaz do? He marries her. And in marrying Ruth, he restores Ruth, this person who's utterly hopeless. He gives her her life back. He restores her to Bedav. One of my favorite stories, and we've talked about this many times over the years at Crossroads, is the prophet Hosea. God says to this prophet, hey, hey, Hosea, go to the house of prostitution, pick one of those prostitutes, and we're not talking just a one-night stand. I want you to pick her, and I want you to marry her. you talk about someone who's marginalized. And Hosea, the prophet of God, purchases her, makes her his wife. You talk about cost, not just material cost, but a cost to his reputation. But Hosea redeems her, takes her, takes her home. He restores, literally, this, this prostitute has a name, Gomer. He restores Gomer to Beit Av, she gets her life back. She has a family. She has three kids. But then tragically, she misses her old life. She goes back to prostitution. And God says to Hosea, you go, you buy her back. And Hosea goes, and he buys his wife back. And he restores her to Beit Av. That's redemption. That's what it means to redeem when someone is outside the house and buying them back or doing whatever it costs to bring them home. And think about how often God in the Bible says, I am your redeemer. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You're mine. And think about what, what, what God is saying when he says, I am your redeemer. First about us. It means we're alienated from home. It means we're marginalized. It means we're lost. It means we're the orphan. We're the widow. We're the stranger. All of us. I don't care what kind of life you make on earth. But more importantly, when God says, I'm your, rede your redeemer, think about what God is saying about himself. He's saying, I'm your father, but not just any kind of father. I'm this kind of father, the kind of father who will do anything 
to restore us to his house. See, God's ultimate goal is not heaven. God's ultimate goal is to restore us to his house. That's why the next three chapters in in John that we're going to look at over the next couple of months, Jesus is going to be talking about his father's house. He's going to be talking about his home. He's going to be talking about his family, which starts with what we call the Trinity, the family of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're going to learn what, what most characterizes this family. It's this perfect unity, so unified, our Father, Son, and Spirit, that we can say three distinct persons, yet one God. And what produces this unity is this divine flow of explosive love and selfless adoration of the other. Jesus washing his disciples' feet is but a hint of the love that has been expressed in the family of the Trinity throughout eternity. The cross. It's that kind of flow. That Father, Son, Holy Spirit have been pouring into each other. And we were made to be a part of this family. We were made to know this Father. We were not made to just know this love. And this is why the whole story of the Bible is about redemption. Because what we lost in Eden when Adam and Eve were banished from that garden, we lost home. We became fatherless. We became orphans, widows, aliens. And the whole story of the Bible then is about redemption. It's about a father doing whatever it takes us to to be restored to his house. (laughs) And think about what it cost him. He sent his son to find us, to show us the face of the father. To bring us back to him. Think about the price that was paid. And that's why Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. No one. Don't make a mockery of this. Don't make a mockery of this by minimizing Jesus and saying, ah, Jesus, any kind of religious road will get you to the Father. Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And then when Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms and I go and prepare a place or a room for you, he's actually leaving this Father motif And he's moving now to the husband motif. Because in the ancient world, when a young man decided to marry a woman, he would offer his bride to be a a cup of wine. That that wine symbolized, 
symbolized his blood. The blood was his very life. And, and he would say to her as he offered the wine, the, the, the cup of my covenant to you, would you take this and would you drink it? Would you marry me? <laughs> Almost word for word what Jesus said to his disciples, this is my cup of the new covenant, the new marriage. The woman then would say yes by drinking the cup of wine. The man then would return to his father's house and with his father's house, father's help, he, they, together they would prepare a bridal chamber for his bride. They would add another room to the Bedav. The bride-to-be then would go back to her father's house. She would light an oil lamp along with her close friends and they would keep this burning and they would wait and they would wait until the lover returned. And then without any warning, one day she'd hear the shofar blasting out in the distance and she would look and she'd see this whole entourage of people singing and dancing. And in the front of that entourage would be the groom coming for her. And he would come and he would take her in his arms and take her back to his village and take her into that room that he had made. And I think John 2, the first miracle of Jesus, is at a wedding feast. I don't think it's really the first miracle that occurred. I think it's first in terms of importance. John is here to say, the bridegroom is here. And now in John 14, he says, in my father's house are many rooms. And he says, I go and prepare a place for you. That's what the, that's what the groom does. And he's preparing a room for us, a bridal chamber. And set your eyes on verse 3 in our text. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. You know, John also is the one who wrote Revelation. And in the last two chapters of Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters in our Bible, John is given a vision of the Father's house. And he sees it now in all its stunning detail. And, and, and when it's finally revealed, John says, it's going to be presented like a bride on her wedding day. Christ will be standing on earth having just purged earth of all evil, all evil, the dragon thrown into the lake of fire, liars, deceivers, all evil gone. And as he's standing there on the earth, like a bridegroom awaiting his bride, the doors of heaven will swing open and his bride will come to him adorned in beauty without stain or blemish arrayed in glory and the bride called the new Jerusalem is us the father's house his family 
And this wedding day is going to begin a new age when heaven and earth will once again be fully consummated and God will make his home with us. In fact, listen to how John puts this in Revelation 21. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And I know right now our minds can't even imagine how incredible that's going to be. That's why it says this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Do we dare even imagine such a hope, such a future? That when Jesus comes and stands on the earth again as our bridegroom, that the curse will once be broken, once and for all, done, finished, all hurt, all pain, all plagues, all sickness, all decay, all death will be no more. And I promise you, the most amazing reality is what John says in Revelation 22, verse 4. He says, and we shall behold the face of God. I mean, think about Moses, all that he received from God, but he's still like, God, I want to see your face. Philip in our text, too, is is, is expressing that longing to Jesus. Show us the Father. We want to see his face. Imagine right now how badly you would love to hold the face of a loved one who has passed. To just hold it. That is but a fraction of what it will be to behold the face of God. The greatest pleasure, the greatest satisfaction, the most intoxicating moment you have ever experienced is but a millionth of what it will be like to see his face. And see, this is why Christians throughout history have not been afraid of death. I mean, you read about some of these early Christians, and it's like they, they fought to get to the front of the line, to get into the arena, to die, because they, even Paul says it. I want to depart. I want to see him. I want to be with him. It's why Christians could suffer with poise, why they could rejoice in the face of trials, why they could have their reputations destroyed, their possessions taken from them, and not lose heart. It's why they could die singing, even as they died torturous deaths. 
because their eyes weren't set on this world. Their hope wasn't in this world. Their hope was in the world to come, which actually freed them from this world because everything was seen in the light of the hope to come, making even the worst things in this life bearable and the very best things in this life leavable. Think about it. In light of this eternal hope, even the worst life is nothing more than a bad afternoon. And this is why Jesus can say, guys, don't be sad. Because he's looking, he's getting them to look at their present circumstances in light of their eternal hope. Do you have this hope today? Is your life marked by joy, even in suffering? Do you demonstrate courage and, and, and even a poise in the midst of suffering? Are you afraid to die? Do you know this comfort? Are you comforting others with the comfort that you've received in Christ? See, this is how Christians throughout history have brought heaven to earth. Can you right now even say, yep, the worst things in life are bearable and the best things in life are leavable? You know the people who have this hope? Well, in Revelation 21 and 22, it's people who are thirsty. Jesus tells us in John 14, 1, do you trust me? Do you trust God? Because those are the people who have this hope. And trust is not something we do with our feelings. Trust is not even something that we do with our talk. Trust is something that we do with our walk. It's something that we do with our life. It's, it's our life bowed at Jesus' feet. And if so, all of you who trust Jesus, let not your heart be troubled because our Father's house has many rooms. And Jesus went there to prepare a place for us. Right now, he's making a place for you. And if that were not so, he would have told us. But since he left to prepare a place for us, he surely will return and take us to our home where we will see him face to face. God, open the eyes of our heart. that we could get glimpses of this hope. And God, let this hope radically, radically change us. Not just for your sake or our sake, but for the sake of the world. In Jesus' name.